This podcast is sponsored by What They Believe series, a docu-series exploring faith through conversations. If your congregation would like to share your history and spirituality, go to whatthebelieveseries.com to find out how you can participate. Visit now to find new episodes and learn about supporting this project. The views and opinions expressed during I and the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to I and the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye in the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. Hello, everybody. After a lovely winter break, tonight we're going to be talking about sex, specifically how sex is learned, thought about, and communicated. In a moment, I'll be speaking with Professor Kami Kosenko, who will detail how we can challenge narratives about our bodies. It's good stuff. Hope to have you aboard. Afterwards... I'll be discussing the importance of birth control. After being in committed relationship for almost a decade, it struck me that I didn't really know too much about the little pill with the big impact. If you realize that you don't know too much yourself, come join me. It's only a product that affects the lives of half our planet, yeah? Looking forward to the show, people. Let's get down to the business of the business. A warning to all of our audience members. Tonight's conversation will include a frank discussion of sexual health and communication. Due to its content, listener discretion is advised. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC's 88.1 Eye on the Triangle, and I'm here talking to Professor Kami Kosenko. Hello, Professor. Hello. So what exactly do you do in your sexual education course? Well, I focus on sexual communication because I'm a communication professor, but that is a pretty broad topic. I think when the students come to the course, uh, they don't realize just how much falls under that umbrella. But we cover everything from sexual communication in our interpersonal relationships, like within families and with our sexual partners, to sexual communication in the media and in organizations. Oftentimes there we're looking at issues of sexual harassment. And we also look at the general sexual education programs in the country and see where most of them are sorely lacking. So we cover quite a few different topics in that course. On those lacking sexual education courses, uh, we hear a lot about the the gross anatomy of sexual education. Not gross as in disgusting, but gross as in just the physical traits, how things interact. But what is communication in that sense? Are you going beyond the actual anatomy and going more into how people interact through sex? Yeah, I think a lot of our early sexual education focuses on bodily differences, so uh, specifically differences between male and female bodies. And if we're lucky and get further education on sex, 
oftentimes it tends to focus on things like abstaining from sex and not addressing issues that most people face in their lives, if not at that time when they're getting the sex education, but later in their lives, um, most people do become sexually active at some point in their lives. Uh, so in our class, we're looking at uh, those very relevant um, sexual communication experiences. So the ways in which parents uh, talk to their kids and answer those questions they love to hear about where do babies come from. We talk about things like how condoms are broached in our sexual relationships. Um, and one thing that we know is that if you look at all of the different variables that could predict whether or not someone would use a condom, things like uh, whether or not they're religious or whether or not they've had sexual education in the past or they have uh, negative attitudes towards condoms. If you look across all the possible variables that we could use to predict condom use, the most powerful predictor of whether or not someone will use a condom is how good they are at talking about sex with their partner. So communication is crucial in our sexual relationships and uh, for maintaining the sexual health of our country. So we would like to think that uh, communication is pretty important to study as far as sexual health goes. So to ask you, how does birth control, the female birth control pill, progesterone and estrogen, enter the dialogue on sexual communication? Um, you know, it's interesting in that it's often left out of the dialogue. I think because things like condom use require some sort of interpersonal negotiation. Um, we think of those as more dyadic acts that occur um, within the context of the sexual relationship between two people. But birth control is something that an individual does and thus doesn't really necessitate interpersonal discussion. So oftentimes we don't really think about or study the ways in which one might talk to their partners about birth control, but we certainly have looked at how individuals talk to healthcare providers about birth control and general discourses in the public regarding birth control methods. But interestingly enough, uh, we don't know much about how people talk about birth control, at least compared to how they talk about condoms. Speaking of condoms, actually, there are some crossover between what you stated about religious concerns about condoms and, and also maybe religious concerns about birth control. Could you compare perhaps how condoms are spoken about in those circles? Well, sure. There's a plenty of variability in any subgroup of the population. I've looked specifically about how abstinence is promoted and especially how religion can help people maintain an abstinence lifestyle uh, if that's what they want. Uh, so we know that religion can certainly help people delay sexual debut, so the time at which they lose their virginity. Uh, and the longer you are able to delay your sexual debut, the better your sexual health outcomes tend to be. So uh, one main motivation of various sexual health campaigns and interventions, often focused on adolescents, is to try to get them to delay um, their sexual debut um, because of it subsequent 
positive effects on their sexual health. So religion is something that we know does help adolescents delay their sexual debut. We don't know exactly how the mechanisms involved, um, whether it's sort of the social support provided by a religious institution or just religiosity in general, um, but we do know there is a relationship there. As far as condom use goes, there are different interpretations of condom use and contraceptives in general within different religions. So I don't know if it would be wise to speak generally about religion and its relationship with condom use. I think looking at specific religions and how they think about condom use and contraceptives would be useful, uh, certainly to understanding uh, different contraceptive choices people are making. We were having a conversation off the air about how applications on phones or on computing systems have begun to become FDA-approved in birth control and in monitoring one's cycles. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, uh, there's definitely been a drive to explore non-hormonal contraceptive options, especially given the side effects associated with hormonal contraceptives. Uh, so various companies have invested a lot of time and energy in developing uh, applications that people can use to track their cycles in such a way as to um, monitor their fertility levels and to plan their sexual activity accordingly. So you would enter that information into the app, and the app would be something that would produce information regarding whether or not you're kind of at high risk, medium or low risk for having unprotected sex at that point in time in your cycle. And the effectiveness has gotten to the point where it's at an acceptable level by the FDA, at least for some of the apps like uh, Natural Cycles. Uh, and these apps can also be helpful for individuals who are trying to get pregnant. So they're not only uh, for individuals who are trying to avoid pregnancy, but they can also help with individuals who are trying to conceive, which we know from a considerable amount of research that most women don't know much about their uh, cycles and their fertility, uh, such that a lot are pursuing fertility treatments when they don't know basic information about their fertile window. So uh, they could be amassing quite a bit of medical expense uh, unnecessarily, uh, simply for lacking some basic knowledge about their menstrual cycles and their fertility levels. What are these details that are being entered into the system? Uh, well, I think this Apps differ, um, but a lot of them want information regarding your basal body temperature. So this requires women to take their temperature with a special thermometer, one that gives them more detailed reading than the traditional thermometers we use, and ask them to take their temperature every morning upon waking and before moving. And uh, that temperature data is entered into uh, the app. Uh, which uses that in part to predict rises in things like progesterone, which would indicate a more fertile period. So uh, that is uh, not an easy thing to negotiate, frankly. <laughs> 
uh, taking your temperature without waking. It requires that you take your temperature after a long period of inactivity. Um, so if you get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night or if you have a restless night where you move a lot or your room's particularly hot, all of those are factors that could affect the temperature reading. So th there's a lot that needs to go right for the data you provide in the app to be good enough for the app to give you the right information. So essentially what they're saying is that you have to use these apps perfectly in order for them to be effective for you. But is perfect use in an organic environment really to be expected? Uh, no, but perfect use of um, the, the pill is also <laughs> is something that, that's not possible. So it's just a matter of what is more, is better suited to someone's life. If you're a person who's had a negative reaction to hormonal contraceptives in the past, if it caused mental health issues like depression, then certainly exploring non-hormonal contraceptive methods is, is something worth doing. Uh, however, there is a considerable part of the population that doesn't recognize that hormonal contraceptives don't provide any protection against sexually transmitted infections, mm -hmm. which is why we have such a high sexually transmitted infection rate, particularly in young adults. Uh, who are also the heaviest users of birth control. So while we might see rates as high as 80% of heterosexual young adult females are using birth control, only around 50% of college-age individuals report using condoms. So that's a, a troubling discrepancy. And it's worth reminding people that regardless of whether you use an app or the pill or an injectable for birth control, there is a need to be using condoms or whatever form of prophylactic that is best suited to your body and the kind of sex you're engaging in. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and those between. If you are just joining us, we're talking with Kami Kosenko, an associate's professor in communication who has taught a sexual communication course here at NC State. Due to the nature of the topics discussed, listener discretion is advised. Now, as a professor of sexual communication, can you speak to the miscommunications that we're starting to see as we go through this conversation? Individuals not necessarily knowing about details of their bodily rhythms or individuals believing one thing about birth control and finding out that it does not, in fact, block sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, how can you speak to that? How how has our understanding of our bodies not necessarily been communicated to us either in young age, where of course it probably wouldn't be appropriate, but even into adulthood where it's definitely at the forefront of how we would be interacting? Well, I, I think you would be surprised at um, just how young we probably should be starting these conversations. There are plenty of European countries that are starting conversations about sex with students in kindergarten. Uh, there was one country that recently got some flack. It wasn't the whole country, but a city within the country started their sexual education curriculum by sending out packets with these stuffed vaginas and penises to kindergartners <laughs> to be using as a teaching resource when talking about sex. And it 
got a little heated from there, but most experts recommend that we start our conversations with kids about sex earlier than we are. And a part of that is due to the fact that female uh, adolescents are getting their periods earlier and we're seeing earlier and earlier ages of sexual debut. So a lot of the conversations that are being had about sex in schools, if they're being had, we're having them too late for them to really make a difference. And when we do have those conversations, they're limited by a number of factors, one of which is the knowledge and preparation level of the instructor. So if you think back to your own sexual health education experiences. A day in middle school and yeah. uh, a, a class in high school that was kind of attached to gym, I believe, last maybe a month or two. Yeah, probably taught by your PE teacher or maybe the same person Dead who on. taught driver's ed. Dead on. <laughs> uh, as if, uh, you know, those were drawing on the same skill set. Uh, but we're woefully underinformed about sex in general and our bodies in particular in our educational environments. And so it's all dependent on us to uh, seek additional resources and additional information. And a lot of the information that's out there isn't very good. Uh, Planned Parenthood has excellent resources that are um, very inclusive. Um, so it's our, the state of sexual uh, education in the country is bad enough as is for heterosexuals, but if you are not a straight individual or if you're questioning your gender identity, uh, those programs are not going to give you any sort of insight into your future sexual experiences. So there's a lot that can be done to improve that, and um, unfortunately, because of how little is taught to us. We're in a state where we just don't know nearly as much as we should about our bodies. One of the results of that is that we have such a varied and in some cases problematic uh, vocabulary for talking about sex. So while one person might know and feel comfortable using rather clinical terms, things like penis and vagina, Another person might be far more comfortable and familiar with more colloquial <laughs> terms. In a lot of cases, when we ask people to define some of those terms, we see that uh, they have different definitions, such that if I'm talking to you and using some colloquial language to refer to my body or to refer to the kinds of sex acts, I, I think we're going to be engaging in, you might not understand what I'm saying because that's not the language that you use to talk about sex. And we also find that when we ask people to try to figure out where some of these parts are on their own body, so they might know what the term labia is, but if we ask them to identify the labia on a diagram, um, most cannot. So even if they share the same language, it doesn't mean that they know what it is that the words they're saying mean. I find myself thinking of back when, a while back, when France was kind of beginning to emerge from its separated tribes and into a centralized nation state. They spread a lot of uh, educational systems around and they taught the French language as the primary way to speak. And that originates uh, in the term lingua franca. Is all of this kind of confusion over terminology and sexual language because there is no sexual lingua franca? 
everyone's operating off of different backgrounds that are spotty and incomplete, and that's causing some terms to be given more uh, weight and others to be seen as kind of difficult to speak about. Is pornography uh, to blame for a lot of people's education and sexual health? Yeah, those are uh, definitely uh, <laughs> good questions and, and different questions. Yes, to answer your first question, I think we do lack a general vocabulary for speaking about sex, which makes it hard for us to negotiate it interpersonally, but it also makes it hard for us to talk about it in the media, in journalism, so that it extends beyond just our interpersonal discussions. And I do believe that pornography has an impact on on our understanding of sex and our bodies. There are a lot of efforts to try to make people more aware of the unrealistic portrait of sex. Uh, so yes, porn is definitely to blame for our misunderstanding of our bodies and the way sexual encounters typically go down. But if we had uh, a better education system and we're getting that information from people like teachers and our parents, I, I think we would be able to recognize the unrealistic portrayals uh, in porn. So it is definitely a narrative built for the purpose of, of entertainment and also in some ways for the development of, of certain markets. But it's important to understand that it also is not an educational system for understanding the body and relationships and, and how people interact. Oh, no, it was never intended to be educational by any means. And, and it certainly um, uh, focuses on the perspective of the male. It's not benefiting um, the female in any way. In general sexual communication, how often is the male narrative the first and foremost thing mentioned? That's a good question. Uh, well, communication research in general has a history of focusing on the male perspective, so much so that initial research on the differences between how men and women communicate only involved male participants. So only involved uh, men's perceptions of how men and women were uh, different in their communication styles. So uh, women have often been left out of the dialogue um, on communication. Uh, but we do know that women can be empowered to communicate about things like condoms in their sexual relationships, even though they are not the ones who physically wear the male condom. So in that respect, the male perspective is a pretty important one to know, given that they're the ones who actually wear the condom and oftentimes are the ones who bring them to the sexual encounter. Uh, also, the male experience purchasing condoms is worth studying. We know that the ways in which condoms are situated in stores affect purchasing behavior due to embarrassment. So if you've ever looked at where the condoms are in, say, a Walgreens or a Target, they're often right next to the feminine hygiene products, uh, which is not the aisle in which most men would like to find themselves. Uh, and it's often under lock and key or the watchful eye of a pharmacist, all of which can make someone embarrassed. And with men being the main purchasers of condom, uh, those factors that are increasing their embarrassment and decreasing their likelihood of actually leaving the store with condoms in hand are important things to be looking at. Uh, so while 
the female perspective is often overlooked. Um, there are really important aspects of the male perspective on sexual communication and sexual experiences in general that are really important for us to know more about. Yeah, uh, certainly. I'm talking about the embarrassment of, of purchasing condoms makes me realize that I, in my entire 25 years of life, and I've been to many stores and pharmacies over my life, I have never seen anyone purchase any kind of male contraceptive product ever. Yeah, I think it's that people do surreptitiously. They try to hide it. Kind of like um, oftentimes women will try to hide their maxi pads or tampons when they're uh, headed to the bathroom. They're just, for some reason, a stigma against being seen with those kinds of products. And so we try to hide them. And condoms, of course, are another product that are frequently shoplifted. So that also might be one reason why you haven't seen them actually purchase. We have talked, though, about the individual features missing from the male narrative, this, this shame about condom purchasing. But what is missing from the female narrative? What isn't being talked about there? Well, I think sexual pleasure is generally left out of the discussion, both for men and for women. But for women, the assumption is that uh, their sexual pleasure is somehow more elusive, hard to find. So a lot of people will joke about the G spot being something that we need some sort of Google Maps to find. Uh, and that pleasing a woman is much harder and takes a lot longer than pleasing a man. Uh, so there is this assumption that uh, women achieving sexual pleasure is something that doesn't have to happen all the time um, because it's difficult. And um, so while men achieve orgasm with virtually every act of intercourse, women aren't necessarily expecting that same outcome. Um, and I think that's a sad state of affairs. Uh, so how women can achieve sexual pleasure uh, and be more empowered in their sexual relationships to talk to their partners about what pleases them, to be able to figure out how to please themselves. I think those are a lot of the conversations that are being left out of the female narrative. There's also inordinate amount of pressure placed on women to achieve that sort of sexual stimulation or to achieve that sort of sexual satisfaction such that we're seeing more and more products being marketed to women to uh, improve their sexual satisfaction and to uh, improve their um, sexual beauty, so to speak. So things... The narrative being that something is wrong with you and, and you will have difficulty enjoying yourself during sex, so you need to take extra steps. Yeah, yeah, that you, you are dysfunctional. And rather than thinking about everyone's level of sexual desire as being different, uh, it, these products are essentially saying that if you don't have X amount of sexual desire, you are dysfunctional and need this product to kind of make you more normal in terms of your levels of sexual desire. 
Um, and, and whether or not there is anything dysfunctional about not having high levels of sexual desire remains to be seen. Same thing about the sexual beautification efforts. There are products that are marketed to women to help them make their their private parts more attractive to their mates. They can have surgeries to um, make their vaginas tighter. And all of this is just unnecessary um, medicalization of sex and our bodies. So I think those are part of the female narrative and not necessarily part of the male narrative. Yes, yes. I'm really happy you spoke about this. A, a market can develop anywhere, even in places where there is no actual reason. Just because a product exists, just because a procedure exists, doesn't mean that it is mandatory, that it is necessary for a person to live a fulfilling life. Yes. And on the subject of there not being a, an average, a normal, a, a point that you have to aspire to, we can speak to the same thing in birth control, correct? Where, as you said, even if the pill doesn't work for you, you still have options, and any individual person can assemble items that work for them and that work for their partner and that work for their relationship that may not be the same thing as other people, as long as they're accomplishing the same goal that gives them a happy and fulfilling life. Yeah, and, and I would certainly advise doing any of that under the guidance of a physician. Um, and, and that physician hopefully will be able to recognize the, the life that you live and the kinds of birth control options that are best suited to it. You were speaking of talking to a physician and how a physician can help you plan how you are going to treat yourself and how you're going to ensure that you have a child when you are ready. But hasn't there been a lot of discussion about physicians taking a male-oriented view and maybe downplaying the, the symptoms or, or desires of, of a female? Uh, yes, there's definitely been a lot more attention being given now to instances in which women's health concerns are not given the attention that they deserve. Uh, and the explanation given is some sort of gender bias or discrimination in the medical system. I think that is certainly something that could be relevant in the sexual health arena. Uh, but uh, when it comes to sexual health, we would say women actually have a bit of an advantage over men in that women have a designated sexual health and reproductive health provider in the form of a gynecologist slash optician. Whereas men, if they have sexual health concerns, they don't have someone who is specifically trained in that arena to speak with. So they're probably going to go to their general health practitioner if they go. We do know that men are less likely to seek medical care uh, when they need it than women are. Uh, so in that respect, um, I, I'm not quite sure that we would see those same kinds of gender biases and discriminatory outcomes manifest in uh, terms of sexual or reproductive health, but in general health, most definitely. Professor Kami Kosenko, thank you so much for coming out here to speak with WKNC and I in the Triangle. You are most welcome. That was Professor Kami Kosenko, an associate's professor in communication here at North Carolina State University. And I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC, I in the Triangle. Take it easy, everybody. Hello everyone, 
I'm Aaron Kling with Eye on the Triangle, and I'm here to talk about birth control. Before we start, let me say that I understand why this topic might not seem like something worth a listen. If you're a guy, male, like me, you never really have to worry about taking birth control for any reason. On my end, birth control has always just been an alarm on a phone, a series of chimes that sound at 10 p.m. whenever I'm spending time with my significant other, a row of little pills in a blister pack disappearing into the confines of a purse. So I talk about them. Well, as we'll discuss here, those pills have some notable benefits, even beyond their on-the-package purpose. Besides, pharmacological perks aside, it's nice to be informed about something important to 50% of the human population, yeah? So let's get started then. First question, what exactly are birth control pills? Well, they are a series of pills that are taken daily to control fertility and reduce the risk of pregnancy. How does one exactly reduce the risk of pregnancy? Historically, putting up nets to catch the stork delivery service has seen rather mixed results. So the pills instead work through three mechanisms. First, the pill works to thin the lining of the endometrium. That's the innermost lining of the uterus. This makes it difficult for a fertilized egg to find purchase and implant in the uterus to begin gestation. The egg passes harmlessly from the body shortly afterward. Secondly, the pill increases the viscosity of the cervical mucus. For one, this thicker mucus typically acts as a shield to prevent pathogens from infecting the body, only growing thinner to enable the passage of sperm during ovulation. Thicker mucus means sperm may not even reach the egg, preventing pregnancy entirely. This may sound a bit gross, but no worries. Our bodies are full of protective mucus. It's not just in our nose, you know whether our sex is male or female. Third and finally, the synthetic estrogen in the pill provides enough of a chemical signal to keep your internal estrogen levels stable. To avoid getting to the reads of chemical acronyms, bodily hormonal rhythms, etc., just know the body typically goes through low and high cycles of estrogen concentration. When the estrogen dips, the body senses that an egg should be released. No dip, no egg, no pregnancy, no fuss. So yeah, Birth control pills enable their users to control their personal fertility. That's exactly what's written on the package. Is there any point in taking them if an individual is not sexually active? Well, yeah, actually. As it happens, birth control usage can have knock-on effects that result in lighter periods. A lighter period means less bleeding, with many users reporting only smudging, but also lessened cramping. We often forget that a period is a form of blood loss, though a natural and expected one, that can nonetheless result in anemia. Less blood loss means higher iron content in the blood, and that certainly has positive effects on individuals struggling with anemic conditions. Through media, comedy, and general talk, it's really easy to see periods as some mysterious force of biology, especially if you don't suffer from them yourself. For many, many individuals, periods can be extremely uncomfortable and result in pain or shock. Use of estrogen or progesterone pills can greatly lessen the discomfort associated with periods and give sufferers a chance to ensure that their periods don't grind their schedules to a halt. Pretty sweet deal if you ask me, but hey, I'm just the radio guy. So, Aaron, you may ask, having caught me in my backyard throwing apples in the direction of disinterested cows, this all sounds great, but I find myself racked with the anxiety of doing something new, terrified that I might make a mistake. Yeah, faithful listener, I get that feeling all the time. Let me try helping. First, though birth control pills are readily available in many places of the world, 
They aren't all available through the same channels. The U.S. is not one of the 105 countries that allow birth control over the counter, so you're going to need to get a prescription to get that birth control, whether from a doctor, nurse, or Planned Parenthood clinic. This appointment may cost anywhere from $35 to $250, but fortunately, much of this is covered under the Affordable Care Act through insurance. This cost, along with the cost of the pills themselves, can be subsidized further through programs like Medicaid. The important thing to know is this. The pill is attainable, with only the effort of scheduling an appointment and seeing your pharmacist. So you've got your pills. They're going to look like tiny cream and pale pink dots secured in bubble wrap. How exactly do you get this whole shebang going? The pack will have instructions. But seriously, the instructions are going to be bone simple. Take one each day at roughly the same time. And if you have trouble remembering things like I do and most people on planet Earth do, just leave the pack in full view of your toothbrush so you can take them before you go to bed. When you are out of pills, switch to a new pack. Again, really read those instructions, but just remember that it's never going to be more complicated than adding a 15-second activity to your nightly schedule. All right, folks. Thanks for letting me talk birth control with you. If you have any more questions, there's a plethora of resources available online that will go into further detail on acquisition and usage. Remember that, as with all pharmaceuticals, there are risks of side effects. These side effects can include headaches, nausea, tenderness, weight gain, and reduced sexual desire. These side effects are by no means guaranteed, but they are issues that should be mentioned. Additionally, the pill should also not be taken if the user smokes, has a history of breast cancer, endometrial cancer, liver disease, or is pregnant. There are a wide variety of options for the pill, so check in with your physician or general practitioner to find out what works for you. Note that while birth control is extremely effective in preventing pregnancy, all the risks we've discussed tonight do nothing to slow or prevent infection from sexually transmitted diseases. Latex condoms for men and women or certain types of vaccinations are the only solution to that risk. Make sure to get your loved ones, yourself, and any partner tested. Nobody wants to spread that around, right? Not to shoot my own ethos in the foot, but I am a voice on the radio at the end of the day. And it's up to you as an individual to inform yourself in the choices you are making. That being said... I'm happy I got the opportunity to speak about this subject. Have a wonderful week, everybody. I'm Aaron Kling, this is I in the Triangle, and you are your fantastic self. Take care now. There you go, everyone. I in the Triangle has given you the talk. But on a more serious note, it's never shameful to not know something about your body or your partner's body, no matter how old you are. Like, geez, let's face it, our sexual education courses have a long, storied history of being crap. Until American schools play catch-up on the subject, we're going to miss some important things. C'est la vie and all that. But be aware, be educated. Thank you to our live audience who has tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants for our Eye in the Triangle team. Tonight's episode of Eye on the Triangle can be enjoyed in a podcast format through Transistor and through WKNC's Twitter page. Our opening music for tonight's show was Safe Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, licensed to Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial 3.0 license. Stay tuned for your usual program of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now. <laughs>